Great. And you can turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 11. Let's pray as we come to God's word this morning. Lord, we just thank you uh, that we could come and spend time with each other and with you, Lord. We desire to get a clearer view of who you are, Jesus, to see, uh, yeah, just to see you, Lord. And so we ask that you'd open the eyes of our heart, Lord, open the ears of our heart to, to hear you, Lord, the eyes of our heart to see you that we would grow in our understanding. And so, Lord, we just, we just uh, pray for that spirit, Lord, of wisdom and revelation. Paul prayed that for the Ephesian church, that they might know you better. And we ask for that this morning, God. And so, uh, may your spirit speak to us through the word we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sweet. Uh, we're going to pick it up here. And uh, last week we were in John chapter 11, looking at the resurrection of Lazarus. And I just want to pick up the end of that account where we left off in verse 38. And so John chapter 11, verse 38, and it says this. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth and Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Isn't that awesome? Like you just read this and it's like, it is an incredible story. And this record of Lazarus, I think it's just like, it's such a great illustration of what happens for all of us when we come to know Jesus. That when a sinner trusts in Jesus, just like Lazarus was dead, we know that all sinners, the scripture declares to us that all sinners are dead. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That we're all in that position. And that the result of that is, is death, spiritual death, physical death, eternal death. We read about the story of Lazarus and the scripture tells us four days he had been dead. Decay had set into that body and, and because that, that's, the, that's the result of death, right? Like death brings decay, it brings destruction, it brings rotting, makes your life smell bad, a bad odor. And, and Lazarus was raised to life by the power of God. And, and the same is true for us spiritually, for those that trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're raised to life, we've been given new life in Jesus, we've been lifted out of the grave, so to speak. The graveyard of sin, Jesus said this, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me 
has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over, he has passed from death to life. That's what it is to be born again. And Lazarus here as we read this, I, I just uh, love the end of this account where he, he comes out in these linen strips and Jesus says, unbind him, let him go. And, and it's not Jesus who unbinds him, but those who witness it, who go and they lay hands on Lazarus and they start to take those clothes off him which had bound him. And it's this great picture of the freedom that comes from Jesus. And in the coming verses, actually, we're gonna see in chapter 12, we're gonna get there today. The next thing that we'll, the next time we'll see Lazarus is this. You know what he'll be doing? He'll be sitting at a table reclining with Jesus, fellowshipping, eating, drinking, with him, and, and it's this beautiful picture raised from the dead, restored from the decay of, and, and the corruption of death, loosed from grave clothes, and seated at a table with Christ Jesus. And the scripture says that that very same thing happens for you and I when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter two that God being rich in his mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and he has raised you up, and he seated us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so Lazarus is this picture for us of not just resurrection, but of, of salvation. Like Lazarus, we've been seated with Christ. Seated in heavenly places this morning in Christ Jesus. And so when we read this, and, and as we get into this text this morning, the transformation of Lazarus was like un, undeniable. It was an incredible source of hope for those who were questioning who Jesus was and beginning to put their faith in him. Seeing what God did, what Jesus did with Lazarus um, was an encouragement. Put your hope in, in, you can put your hope in Christ. You can put your faith in him and, and believe in him. At the same time, the resurrection of Lazarus was this incredible uh, thorn in the side for those who were already planning to get rid of Jesus, to, to get him off the scene. And, and so, you know, the, the repercussions of this miracle was this, that it led to the final plot to assassinate Jesus. And we're gonna see this in this text. Lazarus was like the key figure in the final week of Jesus that it's like we have to deal with with him, you know, many, because, because of this, many people, they wanted to see Lazarus. They, they wanted to see what Jesus had done because Lazarus, lest we forget, had been in the tomb for four days, which just blows your mind when you stop and think about it, four days. Uh, there were many people who had witnessed his death. There were many people who personally knew him in the town of Bethany and many in Jerusalem. Um, and, you know, maybe Lazarus was a commuter, you know, traveling into Jerusalem to work. We, we don't know, but many people in Jerusalem would have known him. Many were there for, at the day of his burial. Many were there at the tomb with Jesus and Mary and Martha when Jesus commanded that that stone be rolled away and he called forth Lazarus from the grave. They had witnessed the power of God and seen this resurrection happen with their own eyes. And it had all happened just two miles from the religious epicenter of Jerusalem. And so just like every miracle Jesus ever performed, there were those who responded in faith and responded in belief. 
and there were those who persisted in unbelief. Those who were one to faith and those who were defeated by their refusal to believe in Jesus Christ. And so this, this section of John, as we close up chapter 11 and then roll into chapter 12 this morning, tells us uh, two things that we're going to kind of look at this morning. First of all, the prediction of his death by the high priest, the, or the prophecy of his death by the high priest. And then it tells us that the preparation of his body when Mary pours out perfume upon him. And so Jesus' death was predicted by the high priest. This is crazy. Check it out. We'll go, we'll go to verse 45. It says, For many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and they told them what Jesus had done. So just real easy, real simple. Some believed. Some decided we got to rat Jesus out. They went and found the Pharisees and they reported what had been done. I don't know what they're reporting, but they just were telling this story. So verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs, and if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So the Pharisees get the report. They gather together the council. The council was made up of both Sadducees and, and Pharisees. At this point in time, it seems to have been dominated actually by the Sadducees. And, and I want to remind you about them. They were the religious part. To me, this is the humor in the text. They were the religious party. You know what they didn't believe in? The resurrection. They were like preaching, there's no resurrection. Can you imagine that? That's what you're preaching. That's what you're teaching. That's what you believe. You don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And then it's pretty embarrassing. Jesus does what? He raises the dead. And he's walking around and people know it. And you're like, theology is on trial. And it's like, will you, will you dig your heels in the ground or will you look at the facts of what God is doing through his son Jesus? It's so pretty embarrassing when you're, when you're saying there's no resurrection of the dead and here's a man who's been dead for four days and he's walking around and like people know about it. So they've got some fears going on. And, and, and first of all, they, they had this fear that, that we read here that, that if Jesus continued, they said, everyone's going to believe in him. Like, wow. Like, that's a pretty powerful statement, a strong statement about the impact of this miracle, the impact of Jesus' ministry, and the response people were having to him. It's, it's no wonder just a day later here, as we're going to... As we're going to see in chapter 12, some of these events we're going to read about, just a day after some of these events, why the throng was there for the triumphal entry. They feared everyone would believe in him because, and, and one of the reasons was this, is that they feared the Romans would come and take their place and their nation. Last year, I, I, uh, I read a biography on, on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's kind of like, what I like to do like in, in my own like personal reading, I'm not like a novel guy, but I like biographies. So I like look for church figures in the past and like to read those sorts of things. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor during World War II. And the Nazis eventually martyred him right at the end of the war. But he was a really interesting 
figure. But anyways, one, one of the things that made this biography so fascinating for me was that it not only was it telling the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his life story, but it was telling the rise of the Nazis and telling the effect of the, the Nazis and their policies and their government upon the church. See, in Germany at that time, the church was like a state church. We don't have that in Canada, but the, the church was run by the state. And so as the Nazis rose to power and they began to assert their authority as the ruling party, they began to assert it over the church. And, and churches were registered. Pastors were registered. And then the Nazis said, we want you to teach this. And we don't want you to have Jews in your service. You need to move them out. And, and they began to tell the church what to do and demand that the pastors and leaders have these certain limitations on their teaching and on their activity and who they welcomed into their church. And some Christians believe this. They believe that for the sake of like peace in their country, for the sake of like having freedom to spread the gospel, that, that, that to keep the church safe and functioning, that probably the right course was to you know, comply with the Nazis to sign off, to register. And then just, you know, do the work of the gospel within the limitations which the government had imposed on them. But then there were men like, like Bonhoeffer who refused. They, they refused to recognize the limitations that were being set on the church and they would not be, you know, they would not compromise with authorities. They'd do whatever they felt needed to be done in service to the Lord Jesus and in his church, and they would suffer the consequences for it. China's like a country like that in the world, right? Like we know there's lots of places like that where there's a state-sponsored church. It's controlled. It's like limited in its actions. It's controlled in, in what can be taught, and the government sends, sets the agenda. And then in China, you have this other thing, the underground church. Which is, no, we're not, we're not, we serve Jesus. And we're going to preach the gospel. And we're going to sh share the good news. And we're not going to come under government control. And naturally what happens is this. There's like tension, right? Between the two in Germany and that, in those days and in China. And you can understand why. The state-sponsored church has accepted, imposed limitations for survival, for peace, and the underground church says, look, we're willing to pay the ultimate price rather than compromise the gospel of Jesus Christ as we do the work of the ministry. And this was exactly the situation in Jerusalem at this time. This is what had happened. The religious leaders had compromised with Rome. They told themselves it's for survival. You know, they told themselves it's for peace. You know, if we make a little bit of compromise, it, it'll be peace. And, and, and now, because Rome had their hands on them, they, they had to maintain peace among the Jews to hold their positions of power. And, and compromise and the power of position had seduced these men. You know, when I think about this text this morning that we're gonna go through, the thing that struck me is the little decisions. The little decisions of my life that set a course whether that's Caiaphas or Mary. 
These leaders had made little decisions and it set the course and the religious temperature of the nation. Look at verse 49. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Verse 52, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. The role of the high priest, here's Caiaphas the high priest, the role of the high priest had been handed down from the time of Aaron. It had been passed on from father to son. There was a a succession. They served over a a, a period of, of many years over their lifetime and it had been God's design never for the role of the high priest to be like a one-year assignment. What? I'm like, what? You read this and you're like, what's going on here? We read in the other gospels that, that the, high, the, the high priest, the man who actually had control was a man by the name of Annas and Caiaphas was his son-in-law and, and he had received a year-long appointment. He'd compromised with Rome and, and provided there was no disturbance in Judea, he could be the high priest. He could, he could run the show. The Jews could keep their temple. You know, provided there was no disturbance, they could, they could go about their worship practices and do their Passover thingy and their different festivals. Just no trouble. No trouble. Any trouble, and Caiaphas, you'll be removed. Any trouble the temple will be shut down. Any trouble, Israel will be removed like every other nation Rome had conquered. And so here's the religious leader of of Israel, and he's a man who had compromised to survive. That's the spot he's in. You know, when you read the Gospels, here's what I'd say. I, I would say, like, it's, like, easy often to, like, look down on some of these characters to go, man, Caiaphas, if I was in his shoes, I'd never, I'd never do that. That wouldn't be me. I'm Mary in this story, or, you know, I'm Lazarus. I'm not, I'm not Caiaphas. And I think when we read these stories, it's like important to understand and believe that you and I are never above going down such a path, path that Caiaphas ended up down. Any of us could arrive there. It happened with little decisions. For us, it can happen with little decisions we make. The little decisions is what makes our character and forms who we are. And you know, when I I would say this, it's those little decisions when, when the Holy Spirit puts his finger on our lives and he points and says, I want you to deal with this. Lord put something on my heart yesterday. He said, this, okay, you deal with this. Okay, Lord, I got something that he's asked me to take care of in my life. When the Holy Spirit shows us a character flaw or a situation or something that needs to be restored, we, we gotta make the little decision to follow through and make it right. Repent. Turn from sin to Jesus. This is, wh- this is why, you know, 
Daily time in the word of God is so important. Daily time at the feet of Jesus, just some time in the word, a bit of time talking with the Lord, uh, and, and, and prayer, and it, and it makes room for the Holy Spirit and for the Lord to shape our character. James says that the word of God is, is like a mirror that reflects the heart of a man. That means that the word of God reveals to me what's in my heart. It shows me. Here's your shortcomings. Here's, here's where you're not meeting God's law. You need to know that he's like put this identity on you and you're his son and he saved you. But now deal with this. Put this right. Put this in order. Listen to the voice of the spirit. And the word of God, like a mirror, reflects the heart of a man and, and reveals what's in our heart. And as we see what's in our heart, we have to say, man, I gotta deal with this. And the Lord transforms us and he pours out his grace upon us and he gives us his favor and his blessing. And I would say as I read this, I just think, wow, none of us are above finding ourselves on the seat of Caiaphas. You ever wonder? Like, you mean he was the high priest? This is an ordinary person. I, I, I bet just, I bet he was a man who at some point in time loved the Lord. who desired to be a teacher of the word of God, who'd been raised and groomed and prepared for this position. I imagine that at one point in time, his heart was genuine before God, but, but a genuine heart doesn't matter when you begin to make room for compromise. The decisions we make matter. They matter. And this tells me as I read this, I just think, you know, like following Jesus will lead you into conflict with yourself. Following Jesus will lead you into conflict with this world. And, and Caiaphas had turned into this, a scheming politician. Don't we hear enough of them? That's what he had become. A scheme, he'd become a master manipulator. He'd, he had no problem calculating that the life of one innocent man was worth the cost of maintaining political peace. Sounds familiar to me. Sorry. He had no qualms about it. So fair or foul, Jesus has got to be dealt with. Fair or foul, we're going to see, Lazarus has to be dealt with. In fact, and we read here that Caiaphas had actually prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Now that's like, like that's amazing. But, that he had prophesied not only that Jesus would die for the nation, but he would die for all people to gather together the children of God into one people. And to me that's like amazing. It's amazing that God can speak even through those who don't know him. I remember, uh, I, I don't know, and I don't know if this is gonna register with some of you, but it will for others. There was a rapper by the name of Tupac who was originally, he was, he was killed. And there's like people who say about Tupac, there's like this whole thing about Tupac. There's like things where they say, the guy was a prophet. He taught prophetic things. Does he know the Lord? I don't know. I don't know. Caiaphas, did he know the Lord? No, but God spoke through him. He prophesied about Jesus. Amazing that, you know, the Lord could use a donkey. That's why I'm your pastor. <laughs> you know, 
The Lord can speak even through unbelievers. You've had that in your life where sometimes like an unbeliever says something and you're like, wow. That was like, that was like really wise. That was like, that was like something from God. And it's true. God can use anyone to be his mouthpiece. And Caiaphas had been used as, as much as he was a scheming politician and a master manipulator. God had spoken through him and he had prophesied about Jesus that he would die and that it was better that he die one man for the whole nation than the whole nation perish. You know, that's amazing. It's like Caiaphas. That's the gospel, dude. That's exactly the story. That's exactly the story of of the cross, that it's better that one man should die in the place of many. And we know this, Jesus died in our place. Jesus died in my place. Jesus died in your place. That's what the cross is all about. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. We're all like sheep. We've all gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him, one man, the iniquity of us all and he died in our place. That's the gospel. The Lamb of God, Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the council planned. And from that day on, they planned to put Jesus to death. Look at verse 54. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So John tells us that the Passover's at hand and, and, and so we, we get this, we're, Jesus is gonna be the Passover lamb. We're coming to the end here. And it's, it's actually crazy because John's devoted 11 chapters to get us here and then you know what? He's gonna spend eight chapters, chapter 12 uh, through, through uh, to 20 or eight and to 19 talking about the final week of Jesus, telling us about the final week of Jesus' life leading up to the, ministry, to, to the cross, and then he's gonna use the last two chapters to tell us about Jesus' resurrection from the dead and the events that followed. And so it's like, we've been like flying over, and now we're coming down to land down. We're gonna get a closer look at the lay of the land and the final, the final week of Jesus' life, eight weeks to, to eight chapters to tell us about one week. And so John says this, the Passover's at hand. Jewish families were traveling from all over the nation. They're coming to Jerusalem. They're preparing uh, for the great celebration, uh, the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, a lamb uh, that reminded them of God's salvation for their ancestors in the land of Egypt. They had been slaves in bondage to the Egyptians. And during the plagues, the 10th plague, the angel of death, you know the story, passed over the land of Egypt and God had instructed his people that each household was to sacrifice a lamb 
And they were to take the blood of the lamb and to paint it on the doorpost and the lintel of the, of the home. And the angel of death would pass over that home. And so as the angel of death passed over the nation of Egypt, he entered every home where there wasn't blood on the homes of the Egyptians. Every single firstborn male died. It's great weeping and mourning. And then the angel of death came to the land of Goshen where the, where the Jews were. And he passed over their homes as he saw the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and lintel of that home. He, he passed over and, and they were saved by the blood of the lamb. And so the crowds are coming to Jerusalem to celebrate this. Josephus, the Roman historian, says that during the Passover at that time, they would sacrifice 250,000 250, lambs. It's crazy. It's millions of people involved in this. And so the crowds, they were looking for Jesus he, because he had raised Lazarus from the dead. That's why they were looking for him. They didn't realize he was coming to be the Passover lamb, that the lamb of God was about to be sacrificed for the sins of the, of the world. Take them away. So we come to chapter 12 and it says this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So six days. This is Saturday before the crucifixion. And I just think that this is incredible as, as you read this. I bet that town was buzzing. Could you imagine? Just the, he's back. He's coming into town. He's here. He's come. He's come. Verse two, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. The Gospels of Matthew and Mark record that, that the dinner actually happened in the home of Simon the leper. Or at least he had been a leper. Wasn't a leper anymore. Just like Lazarus raised from the dead, he wasn't dead anymore. The leper was healed. The dead man had been raised to life and now they're seated with Jesus, eating, drinking, enjoying his presence. He enjoying theirs. Martha's in the kitchen, the usual, right? There she is, but guess what? There's no grumbling in her heart this day. None. No complaint on her lips. She's like happy to serve. She's too overwhelmed with joy and she's happy to serve that which is going on. It's like this beautiful thing. This, this home's buzzing with life and there's joy and it's festive and food is out and I'm sure the wine is out and they are enjoying the company of Jesus and they're rejoicing in what he's done and it's beautiful to me. Like everything is right. Like it's all right. And then the most lovely thing happened. The most beautiful, beautiful thing. Verse three. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. Wow. I, I don't know, like, I don't know about you. I, I read this, it's like, man, it's, this is, it's hard to put into words. It's like extravagant and intimate when you read this. 
Like this woman pouring out perfume on his feet and taking her hair and drying them. The other gospels tell us that she also poured, that when she broke, broke the, the flask that had the, the perfume, she also poured it over the, the head of Jesus and it's, it's just beautiful worship. This is the second time a woman's anointed Jesus with oil like this. First time it was in Galilee, also in the home of a man named Simon who also had been a leper. Something's repeating here for us. The previous time it had been a woman whom Jesus had cast demons out of and she wept all over his feet. Remember that? And, and he anointed her and, and the Pharisees said, don't you know this is a sinful woman? And Jesus said, her sins are forgiven. Her sins are forgiven. And now here again, this woman, Mary, there with her siblings, Martha and Lazarus. And to me, this is like the, the beauty of worship right here. To pour it out on the feet of Jesus. To pour out your heart on the feet of Jesus. To be vulnerable before Jesus. They say, Jesus, I, I'm letting down my hair. I'm letting, I'm letting down who I am. What others don't get to see, Jesus, is what I lay at your feet. What I can't trust others with, I bring to you in worship and I say, Jesus, I, I trust you. You're worthy of my affection. You're worthy of my emotion. You're worthy of my heart and my dreams and my hopes and my failures. I, I pour it out on your feet, Jesus. I worship you. I mean, we could speculate. I don't know. Is Mary pouring out her dowry here? That which was the cost which would eventually be paid to the family of the man that she was going to marry? Like, if, the, if that's the case, all the more so is the beauty of this picture. She's saying, Jesus, you're my husband. You're my life. You, you, you're whom I pledge my allegiance to, Jesus. I worship you pouring out her heart, pouring out her life. She set it down, let down her hair, and then wiped his feet with her hair. And it, It's like extravagant. It's lavish. This is love poured out on Jesus. And, and, and I don't imagine that this expensive ointment made of nard had recently come into her possession. Which is interesting because, you know, Lazarus had died not long before. She didn't use this nard and this ointment to pour it out on her brother at his burial. But she poured it out on the feet of Jesus, all of her love, her life, her worship. And it was expensive and it cost her and it was poured out on the feet of Jesus. And I think this, you know what led her to that? Little decisions. Like how did she get that expensive ointment, which we're going to find out in a moment was worth a year's wages. Like could you imagine buying such a thing with a year's worth of wages? I can't. It was actually 300, 300 working days. So let's put it in Canadian terms. That's a year and 10 weeks wages. She had been making little decisions 
And it had led to this, the worship of Jesus. And John tells us that the fragrance filled the house. The fragrance of this nard filled the house. It was potent. It was pungent. It was sweet. It was the smell of sweet beauty. And, and I bet that any time people were around Jesus for days to come, that that fragrance remained on him. Anywhere he went for days, that perfume lingered on him. It had been poured over his head and on his feet and wiped on him. I bet the fragrance of that perfume lingered on him in the garden of Gethsemane the night that he sweat great drops of blood. It lingered on him when they beat his back with rods. The fragrance of that perfume lingered upon him when they ripped the beard out of his face. And they spat on him. When the soldiers knelt to nail his feet, the fragrance of that perfume remained on him. That lasting, lingering scent, and it had filled that house. And she had anointed him for his burial. That's, that's what John tells us. That's what Jesus says. And nobody else seemed to comprehend what was happening. Like nobody else got it. Lazarus didn't seem to get it. Martha, the 12th, <laughs> they didn't get it. And I go, wow, that's crazy. Like, how come nobody else gets what's going on but Mary understands? Mary understood. Mary had been led to comprehend truths which others did not seem to grasp. Like I said, not the disciples, not Martha, not, not Lazarus. Mary was probably the only one who had truly entered into the heart of what Jesus had been proclaiming for months and months and months, that he was gonna die. That he was, that he was gonna die. As he taught about his death and had been telling his followers, they didn't grasp it. We know this about the disciples. They didn't get it until it was in hindsight and they looked back and said, oh, remember? He said this and he said this. How did, we, how did we not see it? And I have to ask, how did Mary get it? How did she get it? How did she come to comprehend? How did that happen? And I have to think it's because of this, that every time we see her, where is she? At the feet of Jesus. Oh, you, you know the account from Luke. Martha slaving in the kitchen, Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Martha beginning to stew and speaking to Jesus and saying to him, Jesus, I, I'm like killing myself here. Tell my sister to help me. And Jesus said, Martha, Martha, worried about many things. One thing is needed. Mary has chosen it, and it will not be taken from her. When Lazarus is buried in the tomb, and Jesus makes his way into Bethany, we saw last week, Mary runs out to meet Jesus and said, Lord, if only you had been here, and she fell at his feet. 
And here the third time we see her in scripture, where is she again? She's at, her fe- at his feet, the one thing that is needed. She's pouring out her love and her devotion and her worship upon King Jesus. And the application for us is this. Man, be a worshiper. Be one who sits at the feet of Jesus. In your morning devotions, in your quiet times, when you sneak time with the Lord, be a worshiper. When you come to church, say, just make a determination in your heart. I don't care what everybody does. I don't care how bad the worship team is. I, I don't care, you know, wh- whatever it is. I'm going to worship Jesus. I'm going to set my affections upon Jesus when I'm with his people. Worship him in everything. Sit at his feet. Sit at his feet and watch and see what happens. The Lord will share his heart with you and he will tell you other things that, he will tell you things that other people don't know. You know the Lord promised that? I think it's uh, Isaiah chapter 17, verse 7. Call upon, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 7. Call upon me and I will tell you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. He says, I'll reveal the things you, you can't understand. You, comp- you can't comprehend without calling upon me. And Mary had had that happen. She, she knew what was going to happen. She knew that Jesus would die and that there would probably be no opportunity to anoint his body. And she had kept that ointment for him. Kept it for him. And now was the time. Now was the opportunity to anoint him. Now was the time to pour out the expression of her love and devotion and her worship. And it's like beautiful. It's like beautiful. Poured out on the feet of Jesus. And then came that moment against the backdrop of her love and her generosity and her worship that human greed is shown in selfishness and it's in the person of Judas. Check it out, verse four. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 300 300 denarii, the footnote, I'll tell you, that's a year's wages. And like I said, I can't, I can't comprehend spending that kind of money on something like perfume. But I can't comprehend this. Jesus is worth everything. Yeah, like, do we really comprehend perfume? But comprehend this. Jesus is worth everything. And just as a human being, I'm like quick to compromise. We're quick to turn, you know, for greed, for selfish desire, for whatever, when Jesus is worth everything. And Judas, he, he tried to mask his selfishness and his greed. He tried to, to disguise it under concern for the poor. It's interesting, you know, you know, when you think about it, the world doesn't understand uh, anything spent on Jesus. Go to church? 
why would I waste my Sunday morning in a church, right? You've had people say that to you. It's like, why would I do that? Like, what a waste of my time. They don't understand the lamb who was slain is worthy of glory and praise and honor and fame. And that's why we come together to lift up Jesus, to give him glory, to be with people who do so. We come together because we recognize Jesus enjoys our praise. That he dwells in the praises of his people that were two or three come together in my name. He's promised, there I am with them. That he's present with us. This is, guess what? This is not wasted time. I want to tell you that, church. Like, if you're questioning your heart, you need to know, this is probably amongst the most effective time you use in a week to come and worship and to be reminded of who Jesus is and to seek him. You know, some people in the world say, why, why don't those Christians, you know, why don't they get out and do something practical? They waste money on this and they waste that and they do this. Why don't they get out and help the poor? And they say things like that because they don't love Jesus. Guess what Jesus loves? He loves it when his people spend time with him. That's valuable to him. What a waste, the world says. Give money to support that missions overseas. Give, give your money to support a church. Are you mental? What a waste. Look at Jesus is worth our time. He's worth our treasures. He's worth our talent. He's worth everything poured out on his feet. Verse 6 tells us about Judas. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having, the char and having charge of the money bag, he used, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Verse 7, Jesus said, leave her alone. I love how he defends her like that. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Look at Jesus saying this. Look, there, there's a time and there's a place to look after the poor. There's a time and a place to, to share. But, but the Judases of this world don't understand that when you know Jesus, you want to be with him. You want to be in his presence. You want to be with his people. Your heart longs to give to him, to your time, your talent, your treasure. And that was Mary. It's like she's at the feet of Jesus and she's saying, I've kept this and I give it all to you. I've stored this up. I give it all to you, Jesus. I give myself to you. All of my worship, all of my, my heart. And, and you know, I just think like as you read this if, this, if this was for burial, if this was like a normal funeral, maybe nobody would have complained. Maybe this would have seemed normal. But Judas didn't realize what was happening. And so Jesus said to them, leave her alone, Judas. There's many opportunities to help the poor. You can do that anytime. Go ahead. Nothing's stopping you. Help the poor. Do it. But Mary wanted to do something for me. You see, you see, Judas, you see this. You see wasted extravagance. But what you don't know is this. She's anointing me for my burial. She knows exactly 
what's going on. And there was nothing to argue, Jesus is basically, nothing to argue here. Guess what? When people love me, it's extravagant. It should be lavish, reckless. Remember David? Dancing, dancing like just recklessly in love and devotion before the Lord to forget what people think, forget who's watching, audience of one. All my heart and devotion, Jesus. And Michael, his wife, looked upon him and she says, the scripture tells us, she despised him in her heart. And we know the result that is, is she lashed out at him and David said, hey man, you can say whatever you want, but I'm gonna worship Jesus. And the scripture tells us that, she was, that her womb was barren for the rest of her life. Judas speaks out here against this worship and the fruit of his life is what? <laughs> you know, when's the last time you met somebody named Judas? Never. But for Mary, Jesus said, the other gospels tell us this, I'm gonna reward her. In fact, I'm gonna reward her in this way and today I'm like thankful that we're like fulfilling the words of Jesus, what he said. Jesus said, wherever the gospel is preached, this story will be told with regards to Mary. It's in the other gospel accounts in Matthew and Mark that that's said, but today we fulfill that. And, and Mary's story is told, her love for Jesus. Verse nine says, when the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came. Not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. To me, this text tells me that it's those little decisions, church. Those little decisions of compromise or those little decisions of devotion that shape our character. And to me, it's like a warning passage. It's like, do you want to be Caiaphas? Do you want to be Mary? Do you want to be David? Do you want to be Michael? Do you want to be Mary? Or do you want to be Judas? And it comes down to the little decisions. Our love and devotion belongs, it belongs to Jesus. To Jesus. And we want to give that to him. I want to encourage you. Be extravagant in your love for the Lord. Tell him, God, I, I, just, I just pour it all out on you. Lord, I want to follow you. I want to know you. And so this morning, we're going to just uh, respond in worship. I'm going to invite the worship team uh, to come and